Welcome to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Your host, Jesse Jameson, has a real treat for you. You are about to hear a great story. And if Jesse brings his A-game, some good commentary too. And later on, we'll let you know how you can join Jesse as a guest. Now, without further ado, here's Jesse. Welcome back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. I'm your host, Jesse Jameson. Today's friend is Darren from Burleson. And the title of Darren's story is Mamas, Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Ride Motocross. So, Darren, you're a bicycle enthusiast, I take it. Uh, you're, you were doing uh, the bicycle races uh, at an early age. Is this, is this what this is? Well, I, I did do some bicycle racing, but was specifically what I'm talking about is motorcycle racing, dirt bike. What age, what age are you at this time? Uh, well, when I was racing or now? There's a big difference. When you were racing. Um, let me kind of set up the story. We had lived in Lubbock, Texas. Funny you'd mentioned that for a number of years. And um, my dad, due to job, had to move back to the Metroplex. And we moved back into the Metroplex in fall of 76. And at that time, I had just turned 11. And in Lubbock, there were, you didn't see any dirt bikes anywhere. We played soccer. Um, I came to the Metroplex and where we lived in Euless, we had a bunch of fields behind us. We moved to basically the Mecca of dirt bike racing in North Texas. When I started uh, into junior high, I, there were, there were guys that had motorcycles all over the place. So I was able to con my parents into a Honda, what was called an XR80. Now at the time, my ignorance, I had no different idea what the difference was between a four-stroke motor and a two-stroke motor. I still and, don't. Well, here's what, it's, it's, it's called the bore. And basically, a, a four-stroke motor will make more power. And on a, if it's a race on a raceway, it'll actually outrun it. But in terms of off-road performance, if you need that high-end RPM, that wine, you want that two-stroke. It's what's going to make the race. Well, I didn't know any better, so we got what was called a Honda XR80. And started riding it around. Why? Several of the guys I went to school with, there were three different racing teams. Racing teams in Euless, Texas in 1976, 1977. Um, two of the guys were in my same grade. He got to, get to know them. One was, he was running Kawasaki. They were coming out with a new product. The other was running Yamaha. And then another guy that I met was, who was two years older than me, there was a girl that I had the hots for that happened to live right beside him, and that's how I met him. So I started going around and riding with these guys. Well, they were riding Yamaha and Suzuki and Kawasaki, and they were blowing my doors off. And um, we didn't have the money to get another bike. So I just said, could I try a bike? Well, a buddy I had that was with one particular team, I don't have their permission to use their name, so I'm not going to. Uh, they raced Yamahas. And Yamaha had just come out with a class. I'm going to date myself a little bit. There was a guy by the name of Bob Hanna. We used to call him Bob Hurricane Hanna. Uh, he was in the late 70s. He, was a, he, was, he raced 125 and 250 motocross, and he was a god on a motorcycle. He raced Yamaha. So that was kind of came in. Well, when I got on a Yamaha and I actually got on it and saw what it could do, I had a lot of natural talent. And this particular, my friend, and he had three brothers that raced. Um, they said, well, how about, why don't you ride our bikes and we'll see how you can get long story short. I started racing motocross. You start in what's called, you start in your beginner class, then you go to a novice class and you go to an intermediate, then you get into expert. And I blew through those classes in the ADCC in about three months, went to a hundred CC bike, which was a little bit bigger bike. And my first year racing, 
uh, we were having a blast. The problem was my mother didn't have a clue. Um, Darren, got- Darren, hold on, hold on. Let me ask you a question. Because yeah. honestly, when I was 11 and when my friends were 11, or maybe I should say closer to like eight or nine, I mean, we were lucky just to get a BMX bicycle. How is she trusting you on basically a, God, a, basically a rocket that you're going to be she, strapped she, on? She didn't buy me the Honda. My dad did. Um, my dad had a love for motorcycles as well. Um, we kind of scrapped together. The Honda we bought was not new. It was, it was secondhand or maybe thirdhand or fourthhand. I don't know. <laughs> it ran. It was a good bike. It was not a racing bike. So, but I went off and I was all the time riding. And at that time in where I lived, there were trails that we could go for 20 miles from either side of town. So when I got home from school, I told, you know, my mom, I'm gone. And it was a whole different lifestyle then. And on the weekends, I'd like, I'm going to spend the night at such and such house. She wouldn't see me. Well, what they didn't know was we were racing on the weekends. We were going to Mosier Valley. We were going over to Rockwall. We were going to a lot of places in North Texas a couple of times. We'd go down to uh, Austin. Sometimes we'd do the Houston circuit. I was doing that on the weekend. What, type of, what, type, what type of speeds, if you had to guess, are you going at? at 60, once, 70 miles an hour. At 11 years of age. So if, yeah, if, on if, a dirt track. So, so there's a lot of stops and goes, right? So you're not always. Let's talk about the stops. Let's talk about the stops. There's a, there's a thing called an endo or an endover. And that's where if you hit your front brake too hard to stop and not your back one, you go end over the the handlebars. I did a few of those. There's an also thing called a tank slapper. Uh, That's if you're trying to go down a valley and come up a ravine that's got too much climb and you lose control, your handlebars beat you to death. That's called a tank slapper. I got a hole in the cheek from some of those. Um, broke my collarbone two or three times. These are things that happen when you're racing. Um, it, was my, it was when we got into 78 that things got really, really cranked up in racing for us. Um, I raced, like I said, the first year we came in in the fall of 76. I met the people 77. I'm racing 80 class. I'm racing 100 class. And we went all over the state. I had wrecks, broke arms, broke collarbones. Those are things. And, you know, my mother knew I was riding. Um, so she figured I was doing it on my motorcycle because I never had anything serious enough where I couldn't come home. Even when I broke my collarbone, even when I broke my arm, I could still hit the gas and get home and get patched up. I rode with, you know, and a lot of guys, well, this was not exclusive to me. A lot of guys would ride with, uh, you know, casts on and all kinds of slings were the injuries what you did were the injuries kind of like badges of honor because i'm imagining some kids break their collarbone and maybe it scares them to the point where they never want to ride again or is it a unique breed of, of people that are these you know riders uh it's called young men between the ages of 10 and 18 whose hormones are raging so much that they have no sense in their brain and they don't know that it's dangerous they don't care that it's dangerous a collarbone break is not that bad you can still ride with a collarbone break it's just uncomfortable i've ridden with an arm break now i'm not talking about obviously compound fracture i'm talking about a crack you just wrap it tight put a splint on it wrap it tight and go out and ride i did that other guys i know did that um it was not uncommon to see half of the riding class in the 80 and 100 class with some type of cast on them, whether it was an arm cast, uh, 
you know, some, something covering the shoulder. I had some guys that had hairline cracks in their, in their legs. They couldn't necessarily weather, wear their boots the way they wanted, you know, so they'd adjust their leathers. It just, that's what you did. Do the boys that do motocross do better with the young girls? Are there girls that are just enamored by the studs that are the motocross boys? I think today there is because there's more uh, glamour to it. There's more exposure to it. I mean, there's not a Saturday that you can't find something where a major, and now it's called Supercross because they're racing in stadiums that they, they build. The tracks that we were racing on in the 70s were established tracks. In other words, they didn't go in and create it for a weekend of riding, go through. These were established tracks that you went to all the time. And by repetition, you got to know them pretty well. Uh, Rockwall used to have a great track. I don't even know if it's there anymore. We had one in Euless called Mosier Valley, which Mosier was great because it had really two tracks that came together, one side for anything under 125 cc and one side for 250 and greater because those are different bikes different sizes and different power classes and it was it was wonderful um you know we rode down in we we would ride out in west texas we would go down to houston circuits were great houston had three different circuits and those were established tracks you just went and you rode you had the motos you'd ride you'd probably race four or five motos in a uh, in a day and a moto is where you're going out and you're riding around a track 5 10 whatever the number of laps it would be to complete that particular circuit. So let me ask you this. Were there, were, were there deals with growing pains and bullies? For example, if somebody knows that track because they've been on it a hundred times and maybe you've only been on it a handful because you're relatively new, would they maybe, you know, intimidate while they're, while they're going around the track? You mean like stick their boot out and try to kick you off your bike? Yeah, because, you know, those are things that we assume adults do, but I never know, like, when does that start to take effect? Are there some kids that just don't have that in them and they get kind of victimized out there or? Um, I mean, all right, you, 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 I'll give you an example. You watch NASCAR and you can see where they're up in there kind of pounding on one another. Uh, it was not uncommon when you're, when you hit the gate, Okay. They basically, when they start a race, they have everybody lined up in a great big line. And when that gate goes and everybody's trying, there's a term called pulling the hole shot. And the hole shot was if you come out leading, you're leading the pack and everybody wanted to be the hole shot. Well, you might have 30 bikes. And that coming out of that, when that gate goes down, it's every, everybody for themselves. And I say everybody because we actually, at that time, we had some girl racers that were racing that were pretty good. I mean, they were pretty good. They never got name recognition like a Jeff Ward or a Bob Hanna. Jeff Ward was about my age during that period of time racing for Team Honda. And, and Jeff was, uh, you know, he was a national champion with them. But it was great when you, co- you come out, if you pulled the whole shot, you had to maintain it because you would get run over. Same thing. If you're in that pack, you got people pushing off and kicking and all that. Absolutely. <laughs> this this was mini gladiator sport because you want to you want to win the race, and yeah. uh, as far as uh, glamour, you know, at that time you got to remember boys from the age of ten to thirteen, we're we're not the cleanest things, you know. And then you've went out and you've you've ridden and and you come back with five layers of dirt and your eyes are you got a ringlets of mud on you. You you're not the sexiest thing out there. So. Um, I, I, I didn't have a problem with girls, but I certainly didn't attract any at the track. Gotcha. It was a whole, it was a whole different level of, uh, 
you know, I guess the best way to put it is uh, we were all redneck trash out there riding, having fun. So when you're when you're 11, 12 years old, I'm imagining you're probably fifth and sixth grade. Uh, that is usually the age when you start to notice that the girls are kind of cute if you're into girls, right? Mm-hmm. And so did did you uh, did you let people know in your class that you were into motocross, or was that something that was just you know? Because I'd imagine there's kids that you know they wear their football uniform to school because they're ready for their pee wee football league, and same with baseball and what have you. Did uh, did you show your motocross pride? Well, the answer was eventually, yes, once I got into the click, when I first moved in, you know, we had a couple of guys that I went to school with, and I just listened to the chatter. That's all they talked about and got to know them. It took a little time to get into the group. The other gentleman that I was telling you about, uh, by by the way, I had intermingled with the ladies far before 10 and 11. I was always like the female persuasion. And there was one particular girl that I was really had the hots for lived in a part of town and one of the guys that was had a racing team was her next door neighbor. That's how I met him. I was over there trying to woo her and, uh, and leaving. He's over there working on bikes, cranking them going through. And I just walk over and, you know, he, he was, he was, he was a Suzuki guy and uh, he was racing eighties and one twenty five class and uh, doing a lot of stuff. And they were two years, him and another guy were two years older than me. And so I raced with that team. I raced with a different team that was doing Yamaha, but I was borrowing their equipment. We didn't have the money and I had my leathers. I had my helmet. I had all that stuff. But as far as getting those bikes, we just didn't have the money. And so that was something my mom, my my dad suspected it because my dad was always on the road at that period of time. And he was kind of like, you're gone and you're coming back. I think dad was putting two and two together. My mother was either clueless or, it, you know, she put it mind out of matter. My, my mom, when, when we got the motorcycle, really didn't like the fact that my dad went and got it. Um, she didn't, you know, she didn't want me, she didn't want me playing football, uh, I didn't, which we had had in Lubbock. I had started playing a little bit of football and getting into the motorcycles. So it was something she didn't like. As far as the class, once you're on the team, you don't really have to tell people about it. The chatter was going around. What was messed up is I was winning trophies that I couldn't bring home. Yeah, but here's one thing that doesn't make sense to me. I, I grew up rather than the 70s. I was born in the 70s, so kind of remember growing up and, and joining sports teams in the 80s. Didn't you have to get a signature from your parents saying it was okay to be a part of the team? I mean, isn't there Not at that time, no. Wow, that's that seems crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you went up and you could sign up and you could enter your class and pay your fee, um, and I had the McMahon family and, and the, the McDonald family, basically, they were, they were paying my stuff. Um, if you could enter and you could pay and you could get your bike, and you got to understand, there were certain of us, when, when I started graduating to 100 and 125 cc, I was not a real tall guy. I'm not a tall person. I'm five foot eight. And when we started getting into the bigger bikes, you got to actually hold your bike at the gate, crank it at the gate, and then when it starts, jump on your bike. So today, there's no way they would allow it. Back in the 70s, that's why you took and you got in, you went through, and we had a great time. Um, What changed it was an accident that I had in late 78, uh, excuse me, summer of 78, that really kind of ruined everything for me. Um, 77, we really had a great year. I was going in the 80 class and I was going in the 100 class. 
And in, in January of 19- are these uh, when you when you're going from 80s to the hundreds as far as the class, like you said, are these are, are are you starting to get in with older boys as well? I'd imagine. Do they keep a do they segregate by ages, or do you have 11 no. year olds with 18 year olds? No, it was basically it was open. You 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 could be if you could get on the bike and ride the bike, you could ride. God, that seems really kind of dangerous. Like today, of course it was. But to, to, <laughs> today, today it would be more segregated. I take yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, age had. I mean, I was riding with guys at my age that had been riding since they were five. You know, they had years of experience. So the fact that they were eleven or twelve didn't really matter. There could be a, a brand new fourteen-year-old. They were going to blow his doors off just because they knew what they were doing. I just happened to be really at that time, it was a part of my life when we would come from a different part of Texas to back to here. For me, it was kind of like I got to cut loose and really go wild in a sense that I hadn't gone wild and, and motorcycles and me, there was a good marriage there. My body was very limber at that age. I could move the bikes for well, but when you start moving up from an 80 CC bike to a hundred, 125 CC bike, that's a bigger bike. We're yeah. going to uh, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. And when we get back, we're going to kind of go a little bit through the progression here that Darren's experiencing. So we'll be right back. Would you like to host your own radio show? Jesse Jameson is an executive producer with the Voice America Talk Radio Network, the leader in live and on-demand internet talk radio. Jesse serves as executive producer to over a dozen shows on our network. If you'd like to connect with Jesse to be a guest on a show, do some advertising, or even want to talk about hosting your very own show, give him a call at 480-553-5719 or email him at jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's 480-553-5719 or email jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. When it comes to financial planning, most of us would probably rather have a root canal. Math, budgets, keeping ourselves and our loved ones secure after retirement, planning for retirement, risk, reward, and the like. How do you find the answers you need? Tune into Fiscal Fitness with John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina. They'll help you feel more secure in your investments and your future. Listen every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are lots of unanswered questions about life's problems, and this is especially true about spiritual life. Why can't we see God? Why is there evil in this world? Why does God let bad things happen to us and to others? Can we get divine help? Join Carl Mollison and co-host Brian Kelly for Get Wisdom. They have new answers from the Almighty you need to hear, and listening could definitely change your life. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you tired of feeling disconnected and shut down? Since every choice has ripple effects, lasting happiness is a product of the choices we make each day. Tune in to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. Lori Ann Rising and Uncle Mark Olmstead introduced you to authors, musicians, artists, and innovators, all actively engaged in designing a world that works for everyone. Make sure you're along for the ride, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Thanks 
for tuning in to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Do you have a super short story that you'd like to have Jesse read on the show? Simply email him. You ready? It's jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. And who knows? Jesse might just read your short story on a future show. And now, back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. So we're back. And Darren, I still can't get over this. I live in Arizona. We have kids that do the rodeo. We have kids that probably do the motocross as well. But I don't know. Maybe when I grew up in the 80s, they had a little bit more safety measures. You know, we actually made kids wear a mouthpiece and, and, a, and a jock, you know, in football. It sounds to me like in Texas, they're like, hey, if it didn't kill them, it made them stronger. But uh, were there ever any little kids that maybe got mangled? Is there any like one eye Joey stories out there? I mean, I'm sure there are. Again, I was riding with a very experienced group, even though two of the boys were my age, they had been riding you know, at that time, six and seven years, they'd been riding little bikes all the way up. So these, these were very experienced kids. The, the McDonald's, uh, he was two years older. He had been riding something like, good Lord, eight years as well. So these were very, very experienced stuff. The people that went out there and raced, you had different classes. You had your beginner class, you had your novice class, you had your intermediate, and you had your expert. So you had four classes. Did you start at the bottom? That your beginner class. Okay. Everybody starts there. Um, If you're blowing by everybody in the beginner class, which I think I had two races and won both, and we're just, I mean, large, large lap leads, they don't want you in the beginner class. They will tell you, get out of this class. So I hopped from beginner to novice to intermediate to expert in about three months. Wow. So at this point, you're 11, 12 years old, I'd imagine. Isn't there a piece of you that's like, are you dreaming Super Bowl as far as motocross? Are you thinking, I'm going to be the next great motocross pro when I'm, in a, when I'm a big guy? Or is this just a kid's sport that people usually grow out of? You know, at that time, there were two what I would call big names. One was Bob Hanna, which we called Hurricane Hanna. Now, Bob raced... Most of the time, he raced 250 class, and he raced for Yamaha, and, and he was a god. I mean, everybody was, oh, we're not worthy. Um, he was another element that you just kind of looked at and went, oh, but there was a, a young man by the name of Jeff Ward, and Jeff was close to my age, and he had one of those kids that had been riding since he was five. And at that time, he was part of Team Honda on a national basis. He was a sponsored kid. Uh, he, was, he had a bike. Um, and, and it was a career for him. He was kind of someone you looked at and you went, that could be possibly. I didn't look at it at, as anything other than having a lot of fun. I just enjoyed, you got to understand prior to moving back to Euless, the, the, the life that I had led with my parents in Lubbock those years, I was a very mischievous kid because there wasn't a lot for us to do. My mother, I, I played soccer, but that was she didn't want me in baseball. She didn't want me in football, motorcycles. We didn't even talk about it. There was no such thing as BMX. So I got into a lot of trouble. When I got into Euless, motorcycles was an outlet for all of that energy that I had that I could turn in and focus, and I had a direct line of a result of what it would be. You know, the frustrating thing was, is that I was piling up trophies at the McMahons and McDonald's. I couldn't bring home because the second my mom knew about it, it was going to be over. So, 
it, you put that off as long as you can. But yeah, you look at, there was someone like Jack Ward that didn't even enter my mind until January of, of, of 78. By that time I had had enough. I had been racing 80 class. I was in 100 class and I was ready to move to the 125 class. And Honda in 1978 came out with what they called the CR125 Elsinore. And what the Elsinore had was just a, it was, it was a 23 inch front wheel versus a 20. They just had ungodly amounts of torque and horsepower. It was, it was a rocket where everything else might've been a stage one rocket. This was stage five. My, uh, my big wheel had a handbrake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had a handbrake, well, and the I Elsinore think, and I had think, a handbrake and a footbrake. And I think my, I think my buddies had like a cup holder. I mean, we were really pimping in our big wheels. I'd imagine big wheels were just too slow and dinky for you. But we almost got ran over by cars. I mean, I we were yeah. a little wild, but yeah, I guess it's it's not quite the same. I'm a little jealous because you know the vehicle kids nowadays there's some kids Darren they don't want to even own a car how lame is that when i was yeah, 16 I, I wanted to get a car because it was freedom but i i remember when i was 10 and 11 you know i would beg my mom can i sit on your lap and drive the car you know through the neighborhood yeah. and occasionally she would kind of let me but you know you couldn't touch the uh, the the pedals so it didn't count but in your case you're you're taking your bike over to to little girls' houses and going on dates and, and you're acting like yeah, such was, an adult. That seems really. Uh, well, it, it was just, it was, it was a different era. My dad found out Christmas of 77 that I was racing um, because he happened to, I forget somewhere he saw me leaving with one of the teams in their truck and he happened to follow. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so he, that sounds like it's over. I think we're, it was at Mosier because it was local. And he just spends a day in the background watching me race. And that was a Saturday. I didn't come home till Sunday. And Sunday when I got home, he has this. Um, he wasn't mad. He, he was, was beaming like, with pride. He, he was, was perplexed at pride. what, how to respond. And all I got from him was, you know, when your mom finds out about this, it's going to be hell. And I looked at him, I go, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, just be careful. And that was all my dad said about it. So, Darren, it, it, so it sounds like you have the type of dad that for your 19th birthday, he probably took you out for a beer into the strip club. Am I close? Actually, he rented, he, he rented a limo and took me out and got me drunk. <laughs> God, you've got the best dad ever. So, the, you, know, you know what this means? This means he wasn't really being 100% with you. He was actually probably beaming with pride that he had a son that had a sack the size of Texas to be out there because well, I'm telling you, I've, I've, I remember when I was little once I fell off my bike and, and I, was, I was in such like pain. I didn't even want to go on my bicycle for a couple of days. I could not imagine breaking bones and stuff. To this day in, yeah. in my life, I think I've only well, broken I'd a had some, of yeah, I'd had some issues on bicycles when we were in Lubbock, but he knew, you know, he, he knew I was his, his son. And it was, he's the one that got me the motorcycle. He got me into it. He just, he just said, when your mom finds out, you know, that was one of those things. So anyhow, so I graduate and we go into the 125 class 
in 78. Now, the 125 class is, is a far more serious class. There you're, you're dealing with, a, you, got, you might have guys in their 30s right in that class. And I, I started in beginner. I, I, just, I, went, I went to expert in that in, in about two months. And I started catching some notice because at that time, I was winning more races than the guys that were sponsoring me were winning. So I started getting some attention. I was riding Yamaha and Honda comes out with that Elsinore 125. And for some reason I had done something. I damaged my, my XR 80, my little bitty 80. We used it as what we called a pit bike at that time. We needed something. We were riding around. Something happened. We broke something on it and needed to go to uh, Bedford. Honda it was Honda, something else at that time. Um, my dad had taken me in and the new 125 was there when we were getting some parts. And the guy at the parts counter was a racer and he knew me. I didn't know him, but he knew me. And he said, you're the kid with McMahon, aren't you? And I said, and then I remembered my dad. Oh yeah. Dad knows. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> He's right there. I mean, he caught me flat-footed, you know. Right. You know, if it did my mom, I was dead. How is so, your How is your mom so clueless? Like, it seems my to mother, me like our, my our mother was a nurse. Like, I thought moms had like a sixth sense for. Well, stupidity. I mean, at that time, <laughs> at that time, she my my sister was a handful with her. She was a nurse. I'd come home from school. I got my homework done. See, I was gone. I just wasn't there, and so. She, did, she couldn't see what I was doing. She had no clue what I was doing. And again, it's a different era, okay? Um, anyhow, we're at the parts store getting the part. The guy recognizes me, and uh, he goes, there's somebody you need to talk with. I go, and I, I'm, again, I'm clueless. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Han is looking for riders. I go, like, team riders? He said, yeah, team riders. And of course, my dad looks at me and goes, I didn't know you were that good. And um, so... We give them the house number, and then I go, no, we can't give them that house number. We, so we, give, we take that back. We give them the number to the McMahons. Anyhow, a couple of weeks later, the guy gets because <laughs> my mom was going to be there. I know. That's, I'm picturing them calling, yeah. saying, this is Team Honda. Where's your yeah, son? So and she's the like, guy, your business. They call uh, the McMahons a couple of weeks later, said they'd like to watch. Anyhow, long story short was they wanted to talk to me about potentially sponsoring me. Getting me off a of Yamaha Yellow and putting me on Honda Red, and uh, the guys that I was rock, walking with, I mean, I, I asked, them, I said, "What should I do?" They said, "Take the bike." I said, "Worst thing happened, you tear it up, you don't pay for it." I'm like, "Okay." So we had about a six week period that they were watching me race exclusively to go, "Okay, should we put him on a Honda?" And probably what was that? Gosh, March. 78, I get an Elsinore 125 paid for. Well, it's not mine. I'm, it's theirs, but I'm not having to pay for it. But this isn't stock. Isn't this like decked out? Like the, the stock bike was just phenomenal. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You didn't need to do anything to these bikes. These bikes came and, and, and that wasn't just Honda. Kawasaki was that way. Yamaha was that way. They were all just blowing the doors off anything that was out there. But this bike was specifically designed to be what they called uh, the yellow green killers. Kawasaki was green. Yamaha and Suzuki were yellow. 
this was going to be the Red Hornet that blew them by. And it could. It just it had more power. It was really a dangerous bike. They had the 125 and the 250. 250 was far too big a bike for me. And so they're I started like, racing. Uh, they're like, hey, this bike's a little dangerous. Who should we put on it? Let's put Darren. Well, Darren. they, they were, had a lot of people that they were looking for to promote this bike. The problem was with this particular bike is that it was so tall, I could not. I, I was The Yamaha that I'd been racing, we had adjusted the shocks where I could barely tippy-toe up to the line and keep the bike going and then hit this. With the Honda, I had to be on the right side, crank it, and hit the gas and jump on it. Darren, let, it. Darren let me ask you a question. Because uh-huh. I'm 44 now, so literally when, when, when you're talking late. I'm 55. Just, oh, my goodness. So you're talking the late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Was, was part of this sponsorship because in the 70s, wasn't the American thought that the Japanese made an inferior product when it came to automobiles and, and, and motorized vehicles? And in the, it, were they trying to maybe get just more exposure in general or am I totally way off? You know, in the car world, that may have had some applicability. In the dirt bike world, they dominated. You didn't see Harley Davidsons or Indians out on dirt tracks. Okay. You, you saw the Japanese imports. The other was you would have a Husqvarna, some Bultacos, which were European bikes. And those were really 250 class and above. But those four, Kawasaki, Yamaha, Suzuki, and Honda, they were the dominant force in dirt bike racing. And really, they continue to be today. Now, with that being said, was motocross a big thing with 11, 12, and 13-year-olds in Japan? Have no clue. No clue. Okay. Because no it, se- it seems to me like in a, such an American like sport, yet it sounds to me like it's yeah. rooted in Japanese and, and Korean bikes, I'd imagine. I mean, I th- you know, the reality is that was an area that they had come in and for whatever reason, I think part of it was lack of a domestic product. You didn't have a Harley Davidson motocross bike. Now, they had some cross-country stuff. You didn't have anything from Indian. Indian wasn't even around at that time. So you didn't really have anything domestic out there that was going after this. So they filled that void. Um, and, and they, they dominated it. This was an area though, that Honda came out with that product to compete and win. And so I started on that bike in March of 78 and, and it was just, it was ungodly the amount of of, of power. The problem with it was it was a, you were either going to win or you were going to be at the back of the pack. There was no in between on, on this particular bike because the way I had to jump on it, get on it, gun it and go. And it was allowed because I was not the only short rider out there. And by the way, that was something that had come over from Europe. You know, if, if you couldn't stand it, but you could stand beside it and hold the bike, start it, jump on it, you could go. So there was probably 15% of the riding class that had the same issue that I had. Wait, hold on, Darren. That sounds like a scary loophole where they say, wait a minute, let's let Darren sand on a uh, big yellow pages here. I mean, that sounds like a loop. No, I know. But that sounds still like a big loophole to like, hey, this kid's not tall enough to actually stand on his bike, but he can stand beside it and then do the hop on. I know the hop on because, you know, even in bicycles, that's how we'd get on. Right. Yeah. Um, But God, that sounds deadly, Darren. That sounds well, they don't, well, you don't see it today because they don't allow it anymore, you for, know, for good cause. Oh, my. God. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. The kids that I was riding with and, and competing against, 
we didn't see we weren't having accidents again these were all th these weren't beginners in the classes i mean there were th those beginner classes but the class i was ra racing in these were kids that knew what they were doing it is like again as long as they could hold the bike and get on it once they got on the bike it was katie barred the door i mean the things that these kids could do now this wasn't X games or anything like that. The stuff that some of these guys can do today just completely blows it away. But in terms of just pure racing, no, the, 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 the kids that I were racing with were just absolutely phenomenal. They, we were all nuts, but the problem was with that particular bike, if you didn't hit it right and, and get the power it had, it had plenty of pull away power. If I got on it and got the power, I was going to pull the whole shot. I was going to win. If I didn't get it, I was going to be at the back of the pack. There was kind of it, no, you know, you're the first or last, kind of a Ricky Bobby thing. And the bike was good, and we were going through a period. That was in March. We had about three months that we were riding this bike, and, and Dar I Darren, would say about 70% of the races, I was either – I was competing. I was winning in the top three. Darren, let me stop you right there. Now, the name of your story is Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Ride Motocross. Yeah. And we're going to take a quick break. You sound so happy and enthusiastic. The people at home can't see you. For the people that can't see Darren, he only has one arm and no legs. So we're going to get into <laughs> We're going to get into what the heck went wrong here when we get back. So we'll be right back. Would you like to host your own radio show? Jesse Jameson is an executive producer with the Voice America Talk Radio Network, the leader in live and on-demand internet talk radio. Jesse serves as executive producer to over a dozen shows on our network. If you'd like to connect with Jesse to be a guest on a show, do some advertising, or even want to talk about hosting your very own show, give him a call at 480-553-5719 or email him at jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's 480-553-5719 or email jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you ever been interested in technology or the application? Technology is always changing and there is definitely a place for you in it. Listen for Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. Sharon and her guests teach you the skill set and present resources that help you incorporate and enhance technological know-how in your current career as well as prepare you for future success. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. for tuning in to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Do you have a super short story that you'd like to have Jesse read on the show? Simply email him. You ready? It's jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. And who knows? Jesse might just read your short story on a future show. And now, back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Okay, so maybe you'd have all of your legs and arms, Darren, right? 
But on my bike that I was on when I graduated from the big wheel to the bike, I would occasionally do a nut cruncher where, you know, you kind of slip off your seat and you crunch your balls <laughs> right on the, the metal rod there, you know, between the seat and the and the and the handlebar grips. I did. Did you ever burn your leg on the engine? I mean, I've always heard horror stories that people will burn their leg uh, on a regular motorcycle. If you're riding without leathers, you can do that. I don't I was I was pretty good with keeping the leathers. You know, I've described some of the things that, you know, we talked about uh, endovers. Uh, we talked about tank slappers. We talked about a few broken bones and those are minor things. Uh, one of the things that happens long term, if you ever watch a motocross race, you know, you, these guys, they're they're up on their knees a majority of the race they're basically standing is what you're you're basically standing and if you watch how that goes across and you look at the pressure points i mean the cartilage in my knees today from that and from other sports is not what you know at some point i'm gonna have to have knee replacement and it goes back to that um and i've got one side of my body that we're going to get into what specifically happened but there's a wear and tear process your hands take a beating your knees take a beating um, you're going to break bones. A collarbone is a very common thing to break because if you land wrong, you could pop that collarbone, hit something, break the arm, and, and it just it happens. Uh, you lose control of the bike. You flip over. You get kids that are crazy. They try to go down a ravine, go up a ravine. Bike flips over on them. I mean, I had a bike. My, my bike flipped over on me three or four times when I'd be going through creeks, and I especially when I got on that Elsinore 125, I actually went through three of them. Um, because I would take it out. We had a lot of creeks and stuff behind and we had some tall ravines and that thing had so much power. If you hit it wrong, going up a ravine, that bike's going up back and over your head and any appendage that you've got attached to, it's going to go through. I, I busted a couple of front wheels. I messed up the handlebars. Um, they were not real happy with me on that, but we were winning. We were getting exposure and I wasn't getting paid. This was just this. This was really, this wasn't a, quote unquote sponsorship yet. This was, we want to see what you can do with the bike. And if we like what you see in a short period of time, then we'll take it to the next level. Because I was not pro at that point. I'm, I'm, I'm riding an expert. I'm not pro, but we're flirting with the idea. We're you're, flirting with you're, the idea. you're in the recruitment stage. We're in the recruitment stage. <laughs> um, we have a weekend. We get into the, it, this is summer of 78. It's hotter than blazes. And we're back at Mosier Valley. And, and again, Mosier Valley, Texas, at that time, the, the track's gone. It's now a golf course. But they had two tracks that came together where they, they kind of um, met in two big berms. A berm is a turn, okay? So if you hear me use a berm, that's, and there was a huge berm. On one side was the, the 250 class and better. On the other side was the 125 class and down. And it was a summer moto, which is a light season, and had come out had taken the whole shot, was coming into this big turn that connected the two tracks, and my chain pops off. We hadn't done a tightening. So I have to stop. I have to get off the bike. I got to fix the chain course. Everybody passes me by. I go from being in first. I'm in dead last. Get the chain on. Get it tightened up. We're going on. Got to crank the bike. Got to get a whole start. And so I'm going up, and I'm going into this turn, and I'm leaning over left. I got my right leg out, and I am cutting a rooster tail. I'm probably halfway into this turn, and a guy on the other side of the track had lost control, his throttle stuck or something. He comes up over the berm and comes in and hits me head on. 
and we have a head-on collision on a motorcycle track. He hit my right side, and when he did, it pushed my immediate pushed my right arm up into my body. I broke three ribs. Darren, Darren, I hear that breaking a rib is close, not there, but close to like giving birth to a child as far as just pain threshold. What did it feel like at your baby age of 13 or however old you were at this time? You know, I've never given birth to a child, but I can tell you this, it hurt. Yeah, (laughs) That wasn't the worst part. The worst part was when I was going through his part of the bike, his front wheel hit my lower right shin and actually popped my leg and broke my leg compound where the leg actually broke the skin. Oh, you had a Joe Theismann-like injury. I had a Joe Theismann-like, and it crushed my right knee above it. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is where I land is I land just beyond the berm in a patch of weeds. And it's Texas. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a little thing called a chigger. Is that the thorns? No. It is a microscopic bug that eats flesh. Oh, my God. Look it up. I'm not kidding you. And so I landed in a patch of chiggers. Now, I'm in shock at the time. Bikes totaled. We got paramedics coming down. They're putting stuff together. I mean, my hands messed up. I'm in shock. I don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, everybody starts scratching their skin. <laughs> well, I te- there's a reason I tell you that, and it'll, it'll go through. So they take me to a local hospital. Have to call my mom, who happened to be a nurse at a nearby hospital. Comes over. There, I'm going into surgery because the leg's bad. The hand is really bad. I had broke off the end of my pinky. Now, my gloves saved some stuff. I shattered my ring finger knuckle, and I, sh- and I shattered the, my middle finger right below the knuckle, plus broke the hand. guy by the name of Juan Capello, who was a <laughs> – I don't know. I remember this name to the – You name this – he, he was a hand doctor. And I'm going into surgery. They're putting me under. Like I said, I've been in shock. I'm coming out. And the last thing I hear going into surgery is I can probably save the hand. I'm not sure about the leg. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Okay. Not to, not to laugh, but, my God, you're, that, you're about to get that's knocked That's what I hear going go into, into surgery. I know. That's crazy. Okay. So, you know. And then they're putting gas on me. I'm like, because when I hear that, I'm starting to wake up. They're putting gas on me. I go out. Hey, I got I to gotta tell you something real quick, Darren. I had a scenario where the, the time I went into surgery, I had a surgery on my tailbone, believe it or not. And uh, I, just for fun, I told the anesthesiologist, I go, I'm going to fight it. I believe in my powers. I'm going to fight it. And he goes, yeah, you do that. You start the countdown from 99, right? Yeah. And I, I, I only remember 99. And I, I asked him right. afterwards, I go, how far did I make it? He goes, 99. Yeah. <laughs> so I wake up in a recovery room, have no idea how long I've been in surgery. And at that time, I've got a full arm cast on my right arm. I have my hand in a cast. I have pins in three of my fingers. I'm in a body cast for my ribs, and I'm in a full-length cast going down, but my leg is at an angle, and where I'm laying, I can see my knee, 
but I can't see my leg and I got an IV on my other arm. So I don't know if I got a leg or not. So I got my left leg is free. So I kind of reach over and I can touch my right leg with my left leg. Oh, okay. I still got a leg. Oh, thank God. That would have so been horrific. I'm thinking I got all this. So we're sitting here. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm basically it's I'm all bandaged up and casted up. And at that time, when they put casts on, they didn't put stockinette on. They just put a cast in cotton. Okay. This is summer in Texas. About an hour waking up, all of a sudden, I start itching like nobody's business. Oh, my God. I forgot about the bugs. The bugs. They oh had been sedated. God. They had been in shock. Now they're awake. And they're in your and cast. I am covered head to toe in chiggers. And the doctors couldn't tell because they're microscopic. What happens is a chigger gets under your skin and they start eating your skin. Okay. I had does, that, over, does, does it compare to a bed bug? Because I've been eaten alive by bed bugs. Probably. The, the problem with the chigger is you have to suffocate them with like shoe polish. I mean, not, not nail polish so that they suffocate. Otherwise, they just it takes about two weeks for them to die. I had over 100 chiggers under each armpit. Ooh, I that's had the worst. All in my all in my cast. I couldn't do anything. I've got, you know, again, I've got one arm and an IV, one arm. The only thing I've got free is my left leg. I'm trying to scratch with my left leg. I can't do anything. And I'm screaming in the recovery room, just going. And so they come in, they think I'm having a reaction to the anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> give this man an EpiPen. Give it, give you know, him they're going, He's having the, so finally there was someone starts looking, they go. Oh, my God, he's covered in some type of bug. And of course, my mom was in there with me and my mom, she looks, she goes, oh, my God, he's got chiggers. And everybody looked up, and went, oh, dear. And so I got these chiggers just gnawing on me. I, I was begging them, please kill me. Put a bubble in my IV, shoot me, do whatever needs to. The pain wasn't an issue. It was these damn bugs just having me for lunch. And there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do for two weeks in the hospital. They all they tried to they, they tried to keep me sedated because other than my uh, my IV arm and my leg, which we could put calamine lotion on, which was a way to treat them where I had them inside all of my cast around my ribs, around my arm, down my leg. There was nothing that could be done other than to sit oh there. Oh, my God. Suffer. Well, wait, this must have had a blessing in disguise because now you've got the patience of a monk, right? Like you could take Chinese water torture drops for days without breaking. In comparison, probably. Yeah. But the, the whole thing was during those two. And I got to say this. Um, my mom was a trooper. She was she was an LVN at that time. She didn't become an RN until later. She took time off. She was there with me in the hospital day and night making sure I was being taken care of, you know, doing what she could for the chiggers, made sure everything. So when we finally got stable, when the chiggers started dying where we could go home and she hadn't said a word to me at this point, not a word. So we finally get where we could go home. We get in the car, we go to the house again, still haven't had a word. We get into the bathroom, check, make sure everything, get me into the bed, get me comfortable. Then she closes the door. And she turns around and looks at me and she goes, 
how long have you been racing? And I'm like, mom, is this really the time to have this conversation? And she goes, well, considering you've been asking us to kill you for the last two weeks over these bugs, she says, yeah, I think I'm entitled. And um, when I told her, she fainted and passed out on the floor. No way. Are you serious? Swear to God. You know, when you said that she closed the door behind you, I got a, a flashback of my mom. She had this belt that said Cornelia on it and she could. Yeah. Like, sm- oh, my God. Remember, we used to. We used my to dad was to the one. The my dad was the one with the belt and it would sound like a sword being unsheathed. You yes. Know. They can mother- stack it together like so. And yeah, I, yeah. The, the, the kids nowadays, it's uh, like they don't have a clue. They have no clue. How lucky. No clue. My mother <laughs> was a spoon or shoe person. Wooden spoon. Wooden spoon yep. or her shoe. And if you got her to that point, she, yeah, she, would, she was going to bring whelps. But she had come in. And when I told her that, you know, and I just said, well, blah, blah, blah. And I went through the whole, I mean, she just, I saw I roll back and she hit that door and hit the ground. About 10 minutes later, my dad comes in and goes, what'd you do to her? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I told her the truth. Dad, so, it's, it's freaky when people faint, I would imagine. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, from that point forward, I got the massive mom guilt complex thrown on me because it really, it took me about six months of recovery um, to get the leg back in shape, to get my hand. They had to, I mean, pulling the pins out of my hand was just God awful. And uh, all the, the stuff that I had to do. And by that time, you know, it was my, my riding career was over. I was not getting back on motorcycles. Hey, the, because uh, at that the, point, fear, fear had set in. The people at home want to know, if you have a scratch or an itch, excuse me, at the tip of your nose, how long can you fight it longer than the average man? You know, I can find a way to scratch my nose. The problem was <laughs> I couldn't find a way to scratch inside of a, a, a stockinette cast that had basically cotton and plaster and was hotter than hell. I it was a Texas summer. Darren, I had casts on both of my legs from the knees down. I fractured my tibia bones when I was like five or six in a car accident. And I, I remember taking a hanger, a metal hanger, and I would stick it in yep. and scratch. And when they yep. took the cast off, it was just a bunch of dead, like scratchy skin. Yep. I oh, love nasty, but it's, but it felt, it felt great to scratch it though. And they're like, don't scratch it. You'll scratch off all your skin. Yep. We have, we have about two minutes left. Take us into a quick future ride. Cause you got two minutes. What, what happened between then and now? Well, I mean, basically after that, I mean, when you go that, when you have a massive injury like that, where you can't get back on the horse per se, fear sets in. And I went, there was six months of recovery where I could walk and be normal, much less even get on a motorcycle. And, and I, all my buddies came around. I mean, they were supportive. Hey, we're going to get you back on. You'll get back through. Of course, I didn't hear from Honda again. And, uh, you know. Uh, we'll get you back on all that stuff. Just the problem was by the time I could actually sit on a motorcycle, I just couldn't even turn it on. And we sold the XR80 and I just went on a different path. And then really uh, that was kind of a catalyst. That was one of the things that frankly caused a divorce between my mom and my dad. And when they got divorced, I was 14 and in Texas, you can get a hardship license. So I went from motorcycles to cars 
And my first car that I had was a Vega wagon, 1973 Vega wagon that had a 350 uh, four barrel V8 in it with a four speed that would run like a rocket. So I went from motorcycles to cars and never turned back. Darren, as, as cool as your story was, because as a young kid growing up in Arizona, you know, we, I did have friends that, that had certain relationships that seemed really adult with their, with their old man. Like they would, they would have motorbikes and stuff and ATVs. And my family didn't really go that route. You know, I was lucky to play soccer and football, you know, just like, like regular average kids, I guess. But it's, it's really interesting that the most interesting part of that story was something you just said a moment ago. This was one of those big things where your mom pretty much said, hey, I, I can't trust you as much as I thought I could to your dad. Yeah. And, and that's interesting because there's another big story there. Not that you have to share that one, but that yeah. just goes to show the people listening that, you know, these little things that we do uh, that we think are no big deal to our partner, they might be a huge deal breaker, you know. There were but, other issues, but it was a contributing factor. There's right. No question. There's no Derek, question Darren, you're going to be doing a show here on Voice America. Tell us mm-hmm. the name of your show and when it's going to start. You have about 10 seconds. That's going to be the Information Edge podcast. That's going to start on January 27th. It's going to be at 3 o'clock Central right here on Voice America. They can uh, catch that. I, they can catch me right now on iHeart on uh, Fridays on the show we have there. That's not going to stop. And the show is going to be talking about a lot of specific sectors in the economy. Uh, but it's also going to be very, very politically based about what's happening in those sectors, getting the political animals in, and then talking about everyday politics in a manner that we can all get some results on. But if people ever want to call you up and ask you advice about the jiggers, you're good. <laughs> jiggers. 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 I'm sorry. It sounds like yes. a nightmare. Either oh, way you look at it. They are nightmare. They are. I'm going to tell you right now, in Texas, in the summertime, if you've got high grass, you avoid it because those little buggers, they get into your skin. I'm telling you, you want to cut the appendage off. Oh, my goodness. Listen, everybody listening, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Jesse Jameson and Friends. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Be sure to tune in again next week for another great story. Jesse Jameson and Friends is heard every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Jesse Jameson and Friends is a proud presentation of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. All rights reserved.